Hello, Cachimbonas. Welcome to episode 43 of season 5 of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. As a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants, Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans. This episode that I did was a very special one because I got to have two very treasured intellectuals and professors, Brooke Lober and Gloria Negrete Lopez. They spoke about an anthology, Abolition Feminisms, that Brooke Lober helped edit and Gloria contributed to. And we spoke about abolitionist feminist visual culture, why we need abolition feminisms in this moment, how aesthetics are inherently political, and how the stereotypical anarchist all-Black garb erases femme abolitionist aesthetics that have been with us since the start of abolitionism. I really hope that you all enjoy this episode. Thank you to the patrons who made this episode happen. Thank you to the newest patron, Matt Aguilar. Without you all, the podcast wouldn't be able to function. So thank you so, so much. Hello, Cachimbonas. I am very excited to have two very esteemed guests with me today, Gloria Negrete Lopez and Brooke Lober. Dr. Oh, Gloria Negrete Lopez is an assistant professor of women's and gender studies at West Virginia University. She holds a PhD in gender and women's studies with a minor in Mexican-American studies from the University of Arizona. Interdisciplinary in scope, her research, teaching, and creative work focuses on gender and feminist studies, abolitionist thought and practice, Latinx, Latina studies, migration studies, and new media studies. Dr. Ingrete Lopez's research examines the important role of art and cultural work in disrupting dominant legal narratives of migrant criminality. She's currently working on a book project that analyzes the artistic and cultural work of migration activists and artists who use their work to create spaces of knowledge-making, co-creativity, and feminist praxis. Brooke Lober is a social movement scholar who is currently researching legacies of anti-racist and anti-Zionist feminisms in the Bay Area. Brooke is a lecturer in gender and women's studies at UC Berkeley. Her writing is published in the scholarly journals Feminist Formations, Women's Studies, the Journal of Lesbian Studies, Meridians, Feminism, Race, Transnationalism, and on numerous websites of radical culture. They are here today to talk about Abolition Feminisms Volume 1, an anthology that Brooke helped edit and that Gloria contributed to. Thank you both so much for coming onto the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'm really excited to be here. Yay! Brooke, I wanted to start with you and ask, what made you want to help edit an anthology of this kind and what made you think that this moment was one that needed? Thanks for that question. You know, it took a long time for these books to be completed. So I'm trying to think when the call for papers went out. I think the call for papers went out in 20, in 2019. 
So even that, the process of getting to the call for papers was like six months of just discussion among actually people in the abolition collective at the time. So I had been working in a collective that that did some editing of Abolition Journal, Abolition Journal of Insurgent Politics. And in conversations, you know, with friends and with activists and with others who were writing different kinds of abolitionist critiques, I really felt like what you wrote about Gloria in your essay, that a lot of abolition movements are masculinist Mm -hmm. kind of by default. They might have a lot of women working in them and a lot of queer and trans people working in them. And yet feminist and queer and trans politics don't appear central in a lot of abolitionist movements. And then on the other hand, the critique of carceral feminisms, right, that's become more and more important. So in our feminist movements and in our queer and trans movements, there's been so much recourse to the state Mm -hmm. to address the problems of um, sexist violence, transphobia, homophobia. So I think just producing that combined critique was meaningful. And to be honest, I'll just, I'll say, because this also has to do with Gloria's piece, I think I was actually looking at visual culture. Mm -hmm. I was looking at art, you know, and I was actually looking at the masculinism that we so frequently see in radical and abolitionist art. And um, I'm so grateful to have been a part of this project in part because there is actually so much incredible abolitionist feminist visual culture that we were able to represent in these books. So that's, yeah, that's a I part really of love it. that, especially because I don't think that people always connect visual arts or aesthetics with a political praxis. And Gloria, I felt like your piece really helped break down how those two things are actually very much connected. And like Brooke was saying, you did bring up the kind of traditional anarchist quote unquote uniform of like the all black. And as soon as you said that, I knew immediately what you were talking about. And you brought up Thoughty Organizer's bodysuit as kind of an intervention into that stereotype of what it means to look like an abolitionist. What made you interested in aesthetics as a political intervention? Um, Yeah, thank you. A part of me doesn't know how to accept sort of folks talking about my work like this. So thank you so much for the attentiveness to it, because um, that's something that I really struggled with when I wrote the piece. I was inspired in seeing the sort of Instagram posts of Thoughty Organizer, right, as this beautiful expression, not just of, not just centering Mm -hmm. feminist and sexiness and embodiment, but also doing something in this very sort of playful manner and not taking some of these things very seriously, right? I think For many folks, especially folks who identify as women, as queer, as trans, sometimes when certain bodies come into movement spaces, those bodies Mm -hmm. sometimes are seen as not being radical enough or not Mm -hmm. um, as if caring aesthetically for yourself is Mm -hmm. seen as like bad. We have these amazing, you know, queer elders who have said that self-care is, even though I hate the way that they've interpreted 
sort of Audre Lorde's, right? Self-care is a radical act. But when we think about centering like Black, queer, femmes, disabled folks, folks who are not necessarily viewed as deserving of mm-hmm. aesthetic beauty, deserving of adornment, of adorning your body in a particular way. So for me, it was really about trying to communicate and trying to say, listen, like, there's something really important happening with this bodysuit. And it's very complex. And it's very layered. And let me bring you into how I'm looking at the visual art that's happening on digital media, right? Like how are folks circulating these images and how really it was a DIY backyard sort of effort to make these pieces so that they are also sort of these artifacts of abolition that are then used Mm -hmm. for mutual aid network. For me, I wanted to write about the bodysuit for a long time and I kept getting told that I shouldn't. Who told you that? Finally, I was like, I'll just say is that academics and and sexuality, it's people don't necessarily want to dive into it. And so for me, I was I remember reading that call for papers and I was like, I have to submit to this. Like I need to submit to this. And I said, this is going to be my chance to make that bodysuit that everybody has been telling me not to write about. I'm going to write about it and I'm going to show you why it's important, why it matters and why I think we should be paying attention to what's happening. Yeah, They're no longer media so it was like you have to be there you have to experience it's ephemeral and that's Mm -hmm. the beauty of it right just I think that's sort of where I kind of started with like playing around with like aesthetics and in the bodysuit and um the booty shorts the tank top the iridescent tank top you know I can go on and on but um you know I I just love the bodysuit what was the call for papers what did it say that made Gloria think this is where I'm going to write about the bodysuit. Oh my goodness. What did we write? You're supposed to be scared of it. I know you probably don't have it in front of you. (laughs) I don't, I don't have it in front of me. Um, Let me, I mean, I feel like I could get it. I just remember the call for papers had a visual representation. Mm. Did we? Okay. Oh yeah. We put the, the free them all. um, Like, Actually, I believe it was Jakia Carruthers, who's um, one of the other co-editors, along with Elisa Bieria, who I think grabbed that image. And it's an image of, um, I actually don't know the name of the artist who made it. It's, oh, Fiza Omar. And it just, it's like an image of, it looks like a black femme with like painted nails, hands, breaking um, like handcuffs and chains. And it just says free them all in a little banner. And then the background is like a pink wallpaper with roses. So I think even from what we've talked about already, you can see why it kind of made people feel like, oh, you know, it's actually kind of surprising to me that we have to speak from a place where this is in mm-hmm. some way unusual because I feel very rooted in abolitionist feminisms. So it's surprising to me to speak from this position of like not being recognized because that's kind of where my head is at. But I do think that the, I think that the image did speak to other people who were thinking collectively and thinking, you know, with us. 
Okay, so now I pulled it up. So we started out the CFP with a reference to mm-hmm. Insight, Women of Color Against Violence and Critical Resistance Joint Statement on um, Gender Violence and the Prison Industrial Complex, which was published 20 years ago. And we went on to talk from there about um, what feminisms against carceral systems, you know, we sketched out what that might encompass. But I will say one of the essays in volume one, which is by Nadine Neighbor and Clarissa Rojas, is called Genocide and quote-unquote U.S. Domination Don't Equal Liberation, Only We Can Liberate Ourselves. It's the first essay, it's really big, and it references that moment 20 years ago, right, where CR and Insight came together. I taught that essay in my transnational feminisms class last fall, and I had the class like read that statement out loud. And for better or for worse, I mean, we could see this as a problem is that that statement is very relevant today. It continues to be totally current, you know? So I think we were just like, let's keep going with this 20 years plus of struggle. Let's keep it going. And one thing that I think is very cool that's happened since 2020 is that abolition feminisms has been named abolition feminisms, you know? And that's, so that's not just us, you know, Angela Davis, Erica Miners, Beth Ritchie, and um, why am I, Gina Dent, um, all the, the, the four of them published Abolition Feminism now. And I think that a lot of us are reading these texts and we're saying, okay, this movement has a name and it's keeping on going, it's evolving. Could you share a little bit more about insight and critical resistance coming together because I think in the insight group and like where they arrived at in their politic speaks a lot to the connection between the politics of the body and freedom work. So just wanted you all to explain like what insights their anti-carceral framework is and how they came to a space of fighting against carceral feminism. Yeah, I mean, I think we can probably both speak to that. Um, Gloria, do you you want to go? You want to go first? Um, yeah. So a, a few thoughts. When we say CR, we're talking about critical resistance, right? Critical resistance is a abolitionist organization, grassroots, who has been doing this amazing work for a long time of really not only making the word sort of abolition or making prison abolition not a scary word, but actually demonstrating how um, when we say prison abolition, it's also, we also have to say the prison industrial complex. And I think that critical resistance was one of the earliest sort of folks who in the early 2000s, when they were emerging, started to say that the fastest growing component of the prison system is migrant detention. So from the very beginning, we saw sort of folks in critical resistance making those really clear connections of, we're not just talking about folks who are going into, let's say, state prisons or federal prisons. We're also talking about folks who are criminalized across the board. And how can we have a movement that is also intersectional. And so here's where you have a lot of folks from, you know, Insight, which is, um, I always forget the full name. Sorry, I did that. (laughs) Um, I I grew up against violence or, and 
I think that abolition, now that you mention the other books, I also think of the Inside Anthology as sort of a predecessor to Mm -hmm. abolition feminisms, is that you had in that collection, and I would encourage folks to have it. I wish I, you know, I had it in my library before I got, I'm moving and so everything's out of place. But um, the Inside Anthology is also a really good place to start so that you can see all the connections with the prison industrial complex. And so um, I'll stop there if you want to take the second part of that question. Um, where we're sort of insight and sort of CR sort of merge and this collective statement sort of emerges. Yeah, I mean, honestly, there's just there's so much to say about that moment and what it produced. And I think that's one of the reasons why that essay is long. But one of the things that they say that I really love reading, well, so that essay kind of goes over that history from two people who were there, right, in the formation of Insight. I was an undergrad at UC Santa Cruz during that time. And so I remember hearing Angela Davis talking about these things, but they had gone to the World Conference Against Racism in Durban, South Africa, which the United States did not participate in because the United States didn't want to be called onto the map for reparations for the enslavement Mm -hmm. of Black people. And they also didn't go because they knew that Palestine would be represented there. And that's been true at all of the conferences against racism that the UN has held, that Zionism equals racism would be one of the you know major representations of the world at those conferences. I think the fact that Insight members went there for the World Conference Against Racism right before the war on terror really began in earnest with 9-11 affected their politics a lot. So part of what I think Nadine Neighbor and Clarissa Rojas are trying to kind of restate for us is that abolition feminisms coming out of a genealogy of women of color feminisms is also coming out of an anti-colonial transnational or global movement. It hasn't come under the name abolition. So this is requiring us to make some links. But I think that a meaningful question is like, what is the relationship between the history of calls for revolution, Mm -hmm. right? Calls for decolonization and revolution and our calls for abolition against the carceral state. There is actually a link there. I think that they're drawing that out also. I think that critical resistance, we're looking at like 1998 um, or 97, 98, these conferences happened. Critical resistance was also founded by many women of color participated in the founding of critical resistance and also people who had been involved in radical and revolutionary movements, including movements to support political prisoners. So one group that I worked with, I did some oral history work. And so people who might be interested in this, I co-edited an issue of the lesbian journal Sinister Wisdom to talk about the group Out of Control Lesbian Committee to Support Women Political Prisoners. And that group actually was at Mm -hmm. the first Critical Resistance Conference. And they were one of the few groups that made it possible for incarcerated people to call in on phones at that time and actually speak at the conference. And this was due to Bo Brown, who had been a political prisoner, a woman, a queer person. There's a film about her called The Gentleman Bank Robber because um, when she was working in the George Jackson Brigade and police were pursuing them, they thought that she was a man because the way she looked. So people like Bo Brown, who were formerly incarcerated and who spent the rest of their life working on behalf of political prisoners and supporting and visibilizing the struggle of political prisoners in the United States, as well as beyond, they were part of coming up with the idea 
that abolition is a part of revolution and that the carceral state is a key target for radicals and revolutionaries with a focus on political prisoners, but also a focus on, of course, like the political nature of imprisonment broadly. So I think it was like, we're talking about bringing so many things together, so many histories and trajectories together. So, you know, that's a little bit of why I think the Insight CR statement is kind of like a transition in this longer genealogy of social movements and a really important... Yeah, and I also see, Gloria, your work fitting into this genealogy very well because I think something that your piece helped unlock is the connections between the way that bodies are controlled in carceral systems and how therefore aesthetics and freedom and play within that is something that is like actively resisting against that. And you went into your piece about the history of the bodysuit and policing women's bodies that I found really interesting. So I wanted you to speak a bit more about that. When we think about like the history of sort of women's sexuality in particular, it has been so heavily regulated. We can think about it as the early codes specifically around the attire that you wear, you know, wearing three articles of clothing that are sort of interconnected to your biological sort of sex, right? So you had that type of policing and criminalization, but then you also have like, when we think about old-timey photographs of the 1920s, when you think about bathing suits, a lot of these bathing suits were essentially Mm. like body suits, right? And when we think about how women's bodies have been so heavily regulated, how you can get fined by wearing your outfit or if you wore pants, there's this notion of the body already being heavily policed and criminalized. And so any type of At least for me, I see this as bodies that are seen as non-white, non-cis, all these sort of bodies that do not fit this traditional idea of the white norm. Those bodies are going to be heavily regulated. Those bodies and what you can do with that body and the freedom that that body allows, that's what we're not going to let happen. So there's a reason why, like, quote unquote, women's attire... And folks who decided to wear and dress in that attire, there's a reason why they're heavily criminalized. You know, when we look at the history, it's very much tied to gymnastics and being able to move and your body being able to not be constricted with like a corset or all these different things. And so when I've presented this paper in the past, I've gotten some pushback about the bodysuit. But I think what I find so captivating about it is not just how the bodysuit is taken, but how different people mm-hmm. can embody that bodysuit. Although folks have this particular understanding of these gendered stereotypes of this type of body can fit mm-hmm. into that bodysuit, when the Instagram account of Thoughty Organizer, we see that it's different types of bodies who are inhabiting the bodysuit. And these are bodies who are heavily policed, right? Like folks who might be undocumented or undocu-queer or 
formally criminalized people and the fact that you have this type of sexuality being presented authentically and saying like, I'm actually going to put my politics on my body and this is what I represent. I think it's really, really powerful and moving. And so I think it's sort of connected to this long history of policing people's gender Mm -hmm. expression. Mm -hmm. What are you in the public space? And what gets to count as um, as some of that work, right? So, um, yeah, so I think, I, I, I don't know, I can go on and on about the bodysuit, but at least for me, that's the type of history that I wanted to pull from. But I also wanted, you know, I think bodysuits and jumpsuits are so mm-hmm. interconnected. And so for me, when we think about iconic folks in the movement for abolition, a lot of the folks were trans people, mm-hmm. we're trans women, we're trans women heavily criminalized and policed. So when I think about the bodysuit or a jumpsuit, I think about the beautiful bodysuit that we see Silvia Rivera wear in her very famous Y'all Better Quiet Down speech in the 1973 Christopher Parade, where she's really saying that working class trans girls of color are facing violence at record numbers that folks in the very white, very privileged LGBTQ movement or gay power movement were completely leaving behind, even though those were the bodies who were in the front line. You know, I think about that particular image of that fabulous jumpsuit that she's wearing. And although we see it in black and Mm -hmm. white, in my mind, I feel (laughs) like it's because there's this, there's something, the way that I'm reading it, I'm reading it in a particular way. And it's like, it's also about calling attention to that history that some uh, cis women in particular, especially within feminist spaces, don't really want to draw into, right? And that's part of the feminist movement and the history of the feminist movement and, and some of those, uh, you know, folks who are, um, what's that word that I, I learned from my students about like, um, like radical feminists, right? And then feminists who are like, well, who are like super oh, transphobic. Um, <laughs> yeah, turfs. There we go. I'm like, why can't I think of the name? But again, right? Like, it, there's some yeah. feminists that don't want to bring those legacies together and don't want to see them as overlapping. Whereas, you know, within, I think, abolition feminism, um, you know, you have to look to that history because it's so interconnected and it's so much related to abolition feminisms and that history that trans women were at the forefront and understanding that and saying that. And so I think that it's something about criminalized bodies mm-hmm. in particular that are trying to be heavily regulated and yet their bodies are you know, they're adorning their bodies in a particular way. And the bodysuit is a way that they can express that. And would you say that Sylvia Rivera's bodysuit is a part of the abolitionist aesthetic that you talk about in your article? And like, what is that? Can you break that down? Oh my God, of course. That's like the prototype. In my mind, it's the prototype. It's what we look to. But I think it's about, for me being in movement spaces like for a long time whether it's whether it's being politicized with the immigrant rights marches of 2006 where there was a, mm-hmm. a call mm-hmm. to wear all white in spaces 
is there's already this understanding Mm -hmm. of color, the color scheme of what does that color allow us to do and how does it frame us in front of these com- these larger conversations, right? In 2005, wearing white at an immigrant rights march, we heard some of those initial, no one is a criminal, mm-hmm. right? Like no one is illegal. And so you start to see that. But then as we are moving and progressing, we soon realize that that aesthetic and the things that we assume, you know, everyone lives under capitalism. No one can truly, really escape capitalism. So it's like, it's up to you how you decide to buy into that if you do or you don't, right? And I think for many working class femmes of color, how they adorn their bodies, the feminists that they exuberate, there's a lot of ingenuity in that. When we look to folks such as drag queens, there is a playfulness of the femesthetic. They're showing us this sort of caricature of makeup, of gendered stereotypes. And so the aesthetic that I'm really drawing to is how do folks who have been criminalized by the state, um, and here in my chapter, I talk about Thadi, but I also talk about the work of abolitionist writer, a comrade of myself and Yvette, Alejandra Pablos. And for me, I was really looking to her aesthetic and what I felt she was doing with the amazing Abolish Ice Skirt, right? That playfulness, Um, but also the aesthetic, you know, of, yes, I'm going to be out in a protest and I'm going to wear my Abolish Ice Skirt. And this is, this is an aesthetic. This is a vibe. I'm wearing this skirt as a way to represent something, to say, although the state is criminalizing Mm. me and I'm being sort of looked at in this particular way, I'm not going to subdue myself or my aesthetic or who I am. And so that for me is what I was really drawing or I was a moth to a flame to that aesthetic of. I'm being criminalized, but yet I'm not going to quiet down. And instead, I'm going to tone up this feminist or tone up my adornment, my aesthetic care for my body, even when the state doesn't want to, even when the state is coming after me. So when I see those displays, especially of adornment, of how people wear their clothing, um, I'm really drawn to that. So it's a way of connecting my passion Mm -hmm. for you know, aesthetic being what I think is beautiful versus abolition, right? And saying a lot of comrades, a lot of homies, a lot of homegirls, right? A lot of femmes who I see out there are embodying that every day in what they wear. And that's just as important as the organizing labor that other folks are doing. But this aesthetic that they're doing, I think is also really Yeah, one of the questions that I had was about how the all-Black uniform that some anarchists on being exclusionary um, or engaging in erasure. And I think that your explanation just really gave specifics on that because as you pointed to with Sylvia Rivera's bodysuit, like there actually is an already ongoing genealogy of this and it has been erased. There has been a centering of like a like a male anti-prison aesthetic 
even though it has always been femmes, femmes of color who have been fighting against the carceral state. And that's why I just really appreciated your work and then the whole anthology in general, because I feel like it was basically like writing our place into history because otherwise, when you think, you know, that just stereotypical understanding of an anarchist in the all black uniform would continue to be the mainstream understanding, even though that's not actually who's doing the work, you know, like the uh, transformative work on the ground. One of the last questions I wanted to ask was about how our understandings of beauty and the body reflect legacies of racism, sexism, and carcerality. Okay, that's a that's a good question and yes, a very complex yes. question, right? I think number one, right, when we think about European beauty standard, what's considered beautiful, a lot of times it's not folks of color, it's not working class people, it's not trans people, it's not disabled people. Like there's already this understanding of Western standards. Mm. And I think aesthetics really is the sort of study Mm. of beauty, right? And beauty is subjective, right? It's who gets to be seen as beautiful. Um, And I think, you know, there's, there's this really amazing conversation. One of the many conversations that I love to watch on YouTube um, is this sort of conversation between uh, Bell Hooks mm-hmm. and Laverne Cox, right? Where Bell Hooks is saying, you know, like, why do you look towards these white European beauty standards? But Laverne's response, I think, is so moving and beautiful. And what we have to remember is that the category of femininity, it ranges. Mm-hmm. And we also have to think about people's survival. Mm-hmm. Like how are using beauty in a particular way as a form of survival to not get harassed from point A to point B, walking out in their neighborhood. And so it's an understanding of that. But I think it's also important to understand what is our stake in this. And I think for abolition, it's really, you know, when we think about abolition is not just you saying, oh, I want to eradicate and dismantle prisons, but it's also about how does that work translate in your everyday life, right? And part of that is, you know, this policing mentality and this cop mentality, policing other people's gender Mm. expressions when you see them across the street when you see someone like you know and again right it's it's really undoing some of that and saying like okay why am I replicating this to another person who I don't know I'm replicating this type of policing mentality of gender being portrayed in a particular way right and so I think it's important for many of us especially folks who who are and identify as cis women, that you begin to undo some of that, right? To undo that really important labor that is needed of us. This is a really, really important understanding of beauty um, and how we can understand it, but also how do we not replicate this? You know, I guess going back to what I talked about earlier with that saying that always gets sort of taken out of context from... Audre Lorde, and really thinking about who, I think now we have so many beautiful role models of 
beauty. But again, some of those images that we see are still very much manufactured. And so I think it's interesting to sort of have this conversation of beauty and standards and and aesthetics and how people Mm -hmm. are being playful with that. Yeah, I can go on and on, but I think about a lot of the similarities that we do things, especially some cis women, we do things in our lives that is very much sort of considered mm-hmm. drag in a certain way, but yet folks don't want to make those connections yeah. with drag queen. Dude, what you're doing <laughs> is drag. Like the, the certain performance yeah. of femininity that yeah. you're, you know, I can talk about it from a geographical location of, of where I'm at in West Virginia <laughs> and seeing, you know, what is the representation of femininity here, right? And it's really thinking about that and really thinking about, oh yeah, like this is mm-hmm. a drag performance or you can think about college students and sorority life mm-hmm. and all this other mm-hmm. stuff, right? It's this caricature. Folks are so invested in it that you don't necessarily see how the multiple sort of layers and, and stuff. But I, yeah, so that's a very long I could go on and hear you talk. <laughs> Brooke, I don't know if you had thoughts. I guess one one way to see some of this, I think, that I can add to what you were saying, Gloria, is just that the idea, beauty and aesthetics aren't right. political, is an inher- it, that's like an inherently sexist mm-hmm. idea, right? And I think that actually one of the things that we that we were looking into in these books, and and I'll say, you know, the reason. It, the reason why we were looking into this in these books is because of what people submitted, right? And these books, they have like 70 contributors with all the poets and the artists and the writers. But one thing that abolition feminisms brings a focus to is the realm of the personal, the mm-hmm. private, and the intimate. So we're not only talking about police and prisons, and I guess I can say, and you know, armies and states and heads of states and courts. We're also talking about um, Mm -hmm. what's happening in the welfare system, the family policing system that Dorothy Roberts has been writing about recently, and what's happening in the Mm -hmm. domestic violence shelter. How is the domestic violence shelter Mm -hmm. a space of continued policing? I think that what I notice, and this is a little bit different from what you were talking about, Gloria, but in terms of the policing of bodies, I mean, I live in the Bay Area where I feel like there's a war on unhoused people and we're having more and more unhoused people in California because of of rent going up and of evictions continuing to happen. And we have more and more people being made homeless. We know that a large disproportionate number of those people are people of color and migrants because poverty is very racialized here. But there's also actually a visuality. So that's just kind of what Mm -hmm. I wanted to add to that was like, the idea of who is deserving, who is a person, who is a person who's deserving of freedom, who is a person who's deserving of bodily autonomy. How can we open our minds to start to think in a more open and, and non-judgmental, you know, non-stigmatizing way about the range of bodily practices that are a part of people's survival in this kind of very multiply determined crisis? So I think that one example that's really clear there would be sex work, right? Are we going to be policing people's ability to survive in conditions of poverty and violence 
based on the fact that sometimes sex work or selling drugs Mm -hmm. or selling stolen goods might be the option that people have and actually a i mean a fair option Mm -hmm. given the options um and then also how are these carceral systems that don't go under that name also contributing to wearing down people's lives and so a major problem in feminisms right we talked about transphobic feminisms earlier but this whole respectability politics this idea that people have to be engaging in the world at a certain level Mm -hmm. to be deserving of being a part of any kind of movement but especially a feminist movement um i think that that's something that we need to pause and give it some time because actually these respectability politics and these more liberal feminisms that have these kind of requirements to um put beauty aside and only talk about important things that is such a mainstream aspect of feminism that for a lot of people that is what feminism is Mm. and if we have something else to say i think that we need to make that clear and probably struggle right for that vision to be um, understood yeah and i just wanted to echo what brooke said and just to say because like as i was listening to you i was like yes the sort of elephant in the room right is that also when we talk about embodiment i think it's important to also mention the importance yeah. of sex work and that right. it is work, you know, and that there's a necessity for that under capitalism. And um, I also want to recognize that the clothing that I'm also talking about, I don't ask the harder questions of where does the bodysuit actually come from? Like, what are its origins, especially under racial capitalism and mm. thinking about sweatshop labor? Who's behind the labor of this bodysuit, right? Like who are the hands who are touching it? And also understanding that those hands are also being exploited, right? So then again, really thinking about these larger questions and majority of the time, those folks who are being exploited are immigrant, are undocumented, are women, are uh, genderqueer, trans people, you know, who have to look to these economies. So also understanding that, understanding that this is a much more layered conversation. It's almost like an onion, right? Like peeling all these layers back of it. But yeah, I just wanted to sort of- I love it. I think you've both given the Kachibonas so much to think about. The question that I'm ending the season with for all interviewees is what is something that is inspiring you lately? We don't want to leave on a sad note. You feel me? Um, okay, let, let me take it real quick and then I'll let Gordia finish our, our our time with you if that's okay. But I'll just, you know, because we were talking about this before we started recording, I just want to say that I um, I just took this trip to Mexico City and um, I think that Latin American feminisms from Argentina especially and Mexico have been really inspiring for me lately. So um, I think that the Ni Una Menos movement coming out of Argentina one of the reasons why I think it's so inspiring is because I feel like they are paying attention to femicide, to feminicide, to violence against women in a way that I do not see people in the United States at this moment paying attention. What I mean by that is, like, if you go on the Neo Namenos Instagram account, 
every time there is an incident of domestic abuse that results in the murder of a woman, you will see her memorialized on their Instagram account. I don't know of a resource in the United States that we have that actually draws our attention to the violence that we know is happening in our communities every day. And it's not being collected. It's not being systematized in that way. It's not being attended to. I think another thing that's so crucial about their movement is that transgender women have been in leadership mm. in the New Naminos movement. So you have an incredible coalition that's based on a material reality of violence against women, which transgender women experience um, in high numbers. And I think that it's also been a movement that's taken up space in public that's massive and that brings mm-hmm. so many people together actually in a politics that is clearly not like merely private or personal, but absolutely is about the larger society and it makes demands on the state. I think that across Latin America, that's been really exciting. And um, a couple of years ago, the Zapatistas had a women's encuentro mm-hmm. where women from all over Latin America um, came together and beyond, right? There were women from the US, Canada, Europe, elsewhere as well. But the Zapatista movement, it was amazing to hear them say that they haven't entirely eradicated sexist violence in their communities, but they've had zero femicides. They've had no feminicide right in their community. And I think that that is an incredible example for us all to really give pause and think about how, how did they get there? How did they get to that point in the last, I think now the revolution is about to be 30 years mm-hmm. old. So for after 30 years of struggle that they got to that point has been in- incredibly inspiring. And as someone who works in gender women's studies, I mean, for me, I want to bring us to a place where we can focus on the actual life and death struggle that I think feminist, queer, and trans mm-hmm. politics are really about. Thank you for that. I was like, <laughs> I think for me, what I'm inspired by this focus on art and the possibilities of art as a way to um, sort of imagine otherwise, right? Like I've, I've been really inspired by folks who are doing that really difficult labor in their creative work and also just really constantly inspired by folks who inside who are continuing to make art, who are finding these small moments yeah. of humanity in a space Um, They're constantly being dehumanized. So for me, I think that's what really sort of inspires me and um, allows me to keep going. And I definitely agree with Brooke in thinking much more expansively and not necessarily being as U.S. centered when it comes to conversations of, of feminism. Right. And gender violence and seeing the really awesome, very militant work and how, you know, feminists in Mexico basically, um, you know, tagged national monuments and, and had protests in front of these national monuments. And so it's like to see, you know, like what would that have looked like here in the U.S. if folks really, you know, with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, if massive sort of wave of like we are going to sort of occupy these national landmarks right and and what that would have looked like within a U.S. context but I think it's much more different right and I think it's important to look 
to not just be in the U.S., not just be very U.S. centered, but to look sort of transnationally to see what are other folks doing um, here, really thinking about some of the work that Brooke does with folks who are advocating for mm-hmm. Palestine, right? And important sort of labor that is happening, even though they're yeah. in a constant state of war, constantly being displaced, right? And looking to other places to draw affinities to and to draw intersectional analysis. Um, yeah, so definitely inspired by movements for liberation that are happening. You know, even what's happening yes. in France too. Which I know, I, I know they don't like Americans. I respect them. <laughs> I'm like, wow, y'all are burning oh my the down because he's trying to raise the retirement age two years. U.S. could never. <laughs> but also we could. <laughs> also think, you know, like the police, like uh, a young man, right? Like who had particular ties with, um, you know, countries yeah. that France had colonized. So I think it's also interesting to see, you know, like police violence, not yeah. just happening here in the U.S., but also exported outward right and how are people in other places responding to that systemic police violence and how people taking to the streets people burning stuff you know and mexican feminists they also like burn down precincts right like these because of the impunity Mm -hmm. so it's like they're already understanding um the sort of criminal injustice system in mexico in a particular way understanding that there is no regress, right? So already this anti-carceral feminist understanding, but again, right, looking to these other places to how they're responding. And what does that tell us about what we can or can't do here? For sure. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you both so much. This was such a fruitful conversation and gave me a lot to think about. So I know that the listeners will also have enjoyed this conversation as well. Thank you both for being on the podcast and I hope to have you back um, for your next project. Thank you so much. It's great to talk with you both. Thanks for inviting us. Bye. Thank you so much for this. And and thank you, Brooke, for for hopping on on such short notice. This has been a really awesome conversation. And I can't wait to see how folks sort of listen to it or what they think about these conversations. Yeah, get in touch with us. Find us. (laughs) Tell us what you think. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast hosted and produced by Yvette Porja. The audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans as a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants. If you all love this episode and want to support the podcast, Another completely free way to help the podcast is by leaving an Apple podcast or Spotify reading and review. You can also follow on social media at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to continue the conversations there. Send the episodes that you enjoy to your friends. Word of mouth is also another way that Radio Cachimbona has gained its listenership, so I always appreciate that. I hope that you all enjoy this episode. Thanks. Bye, Cachimbonas.